This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we have the return of a very great guest and a great friend, someone to whom I am eternally grateful for three reasons. More than three, but these are the main three. He published Solving the Communion Enigma, The Key, and Supernatural, the book I wrote with Jeff Kripal on at on Tartar Penguin and did a wonderful job with our books. I welcome Mitch Horowitz back to Dreamland. Let me tell you a little bit about Mitch. Aside, aside from the fact that he's an incredibly cool guy, which you can see just by the look of him, uh, he is, uh, gosh, Mitch has done so much. He is an describes himself as a historian of alternative spirituality. And that's not all of it. He is not just a historian. He is, uh, well, he's something else. We'll try to figure out what that is during the course of the show, and it'll be fun. Outsider history, uh, the relevance of it to our lives. And we're all very interested in outsider history here. Uh, he is the lecturer in residence at the Philosophical Research Society in uh, Los Angeles. That's uh, Manley Hall's organization. Uh, he is the author of Occult America, which we've talked about on Dreamland, on and One Simple Idea, which we've also talked about, how positive thinking reshaped modern life, and The Miracle Club. We've talked about that, too. And we haven't talked about the miracle habits. We should talk about that. But today, we're talking about the book he has just published, Uncertain Places. It is a wild and wonderful trip. We're going into the into tunnels beneath the Valley of the Kings. We're going deep into witchcraft. Today, we're going just about everywhere Nobody else ever goes. And welcome to Dreamland, Mitch. I'm so glad you're here. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Whitley. Wonderful to see you. Oh, we're going to have a wonderful time. I can hardly wait. Where shall I start? <laughs> Uncertain places is a journey and a half, boy. All right. Okay, let's start with UFOs. I've got z zillions of notes, as you may know. Right. Uh, my listeners know that I'm one of those one of the few people in this field who actually reads the books, and I'm, I do it very seriously. And, and anyway, even if I didn't read the books, if it was your book, I certainly would read it. You say, we talk, well, first of all, let's talk about the change in the UFO phenomenon. There's been a huge cultural change here. Yes. You tell us a little bit about that, and then I'll ask you a few more questions about it. For me, the cultural change began, I think, in the summer, late summer of 2019. Uh, there was a panel hosted at the Guggenheim Museum here in New York City, which is home to me, on the UFO uh, question with uh, Gordon White and Diana Pasalka. And uh, the room was packed. Uh, the auditorium was just filled to standing capacity. And afterwards, the curator said to me, at what point do you think that denial of the UFO thesis is going to become intellectually embarrassing? And I just looked at him at that moment and said, you know, honestly, I think we've hit that point right at this instant, right now. Uh, there's no serious person aside from a few dogmatic skeptics. And, you know, for them, it's almost a matter of, of, of a guild mentality. Uh, who would deny the absolute validity of the UFO thesis as a question of, of urgency and as something that can't be ascribed to uh, accident, misreported, swamp gas, imagination, somebody having too much to drink, whatever. You know, we've heard it all. And that school of thought, the UFO denialist school of thought, I suppose is as uh, bygone at this point as we're speaking now in, in late uh, 2022 as uh, climate change denialism, for example, you know, and that position was was very much alive 18 months ago. That's changed. 
Uh, so we are in a new place in our culture where UFOs are entirely mainstream. And to those of us who have been following the phenomena for decades, that can seem so long in coming that it's almost like a yawn. But I can remember with vividness just a few years ago where it would be unthinkable for mainstream news outlets like the New Yorker or the New York Times to take seriously the UFO question. And today, uh, its opposite is impossible. Well, you know, that leads me to another question, uh, which is essentially, what about us? Because if UFOs are here, then there's millions of us who have had close encounter experiences. And I have to ask you, is someone coming out of them and taking us into them or not? And you say in the book that you don't see them as an occult um, phenomenon. And I think you're right to say that. But there's something way off here. Yeah. Because it, it bleeds off, as you know so well, having read uh, and edited Supernatural, it bleeds off into areas that we think of as the occult when you get closer. Sure. And it, those two areas may increasingly converge. My definition of the occult is belief in an unseen dimension of existence whose forces can be felt on and through us. Now, uh, the UFO question remains as wide open as ever. And the two primary, I think, points of inquiry are uh, extraterrestrial versus interdimensional. I lean towards the interdimensional only because our current models of reality, it seems to me, do more to support it. We can figure out ways that objects can travel extraordinary distances, like through what we call cosmic wormholes or something of that nature. But we're further along the road, it seems to me, especially through quantum mechanics and through models of reality like string theory, of not only understanding more about the question of interdimensionality, but I would say since the 1950s, uh, interdimensionality is almost a logical imperative. Uh, there's so much in quantum theory that, that could be talked about from the Schrodinger's cat experiments up through the many worlds theory, which I find absolutely compelling and has remained so for 60 some odd years. Um, it seems to me that we face a logical imperative in acknowledging interdimensionality. And once we've made that acknowledgement, it stands to reason that not only are there other intelligent beings, but there, there must be, and they're going to take other and varying forms. And these things are as real as the floorboards beneath my feet. Uh, but they also may be things that with our ordinary senses, most of the time, we're not able to readily detect. And yet we do seem to travel among intersections of time. We know that, for example, from uh, precognition research within academic uh, parapsychology. And once you open that lid, once you determine, for example, or provide statistical evidence, we'll say, uh, in a laboratory setting, that the psyche is capable of traveling between intersections of time. Again, you start to knock at the door of an imperative of the individual encountering experiences, beings, intelligences from these different intersections of time, which may not be visible to me at 2.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday, but may suddenly become visible to me at a certain moment, as has happened to you, as has happened to many of your listeners, as has happened to thousands upon thousands of people uh, whose letters you and Anne uh, cultivated and, and, and personally responded to in many instances. And right. it seems to me that if the UFO thesis starts to travel more and more in the direction of interdimensionality, um, then what we call the occult and the UFO thesis begin to converge. And we're going to need a new vocabulary because we're going to start to have to talk about this in a way that is encompassing uh, historically and of a vast range of experiences that go by different names. Because we have had in human life a such an extraordinary uh, journey with someone else, it, not just here, not, and since uh, the UFO phenomenon began to be noticed, but for a long, long time. 
You know, free Dreamlanders, speaking of a long, long time, I wish you didn't have to spend a long, long time with these commercials, but you do. And we'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it. And I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. It was the quietest, loveliest evening you could imagine. Suddenly, uh, a group of them are coming toward him, and he gets taken outside to the back porch where he's placed on this cot that then takes him out to a clearing in the woods. I remember sitting in a circle in the woods in the snow, and then I suddenly went up in the air. I felt like when you're going up in a fast elevator, I felt my stomach went le left behind and I see the trees going by and then I see the clouds. Then I'm in a little room just like that. It's frightening being completely conscious, not having control of your body and then being shot up into some kind of ship or room. It smells like cheese in here. It's not kind of shoot, tell you the truth. It's not clean in here. And I kept trying to wake up because I obviously was not in bed. You know, it had to be a nightmare, right? And uh, I realized these creatures were there. They were funny looking. They were like the workers. And then there was this willowy kind of taller being with the great big black eyes who was the leader it felt like a woman to me I see the head real clearly are you old she says yes I'm old she's looking at me real close she puts your cheek up by my face What do you mean an operation? I'm not going to let you do an operation on me. You have absolutely no right. She says we do have a right. I kept trying to wake up because I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm getting real scared again. Real scared. Because I cannot do a thing about this. Could let me smell you. I wanted to smell him because I wanted to, I was trying to get some way of telling whether or not 
this was real. So this one puts his hand up against my face and it smelled like cinnamon. The smell of cinnamon was grounding in one sense. It made me think that I was in a real situation. In another sense, it was extremely disturbing for the same reason. The real situation I was in was very weird and very provocative with two different kinds of extremely strange looking creatures and I was physically helpless and couldn't get away. That's when they start to perform experiments on his body blue ones open a box and show me this needle and they're going to put the needle in my head I how I know that I don't know but I do and I start to say you're going to ruin a beautiful mind but they put the needle in the side of my head anyway it makes a cracking sound but there's no pain We're back. We're talking to Mitch Horowitz. His website, MitchHorowitz.com, his new book, Uncertain Places. That is to say, it's this 50,000 word or 50,000 page book because it's about everything and everywhere. Just kidding. It's not 50,000 pages. It's about what? About 300 pages. It's a normal book. But my point is this, all places are uncertain places. And it's a wonderful journey through Mitch's experience of those uncertain places. And I want to go to one of them now. Uh, Mitch also is the, has a documentary that's been out since January that's absolute dynamite called The Kabbalion, K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N. And you can get it anywhere. I got it myself on Amazon. I you had to go. I had to go to the Amazon website and buy it, and then it streamed over Amazon Prime. But you can probably buy it on YouTube or any any. It's not. It's non critical to buy it. And uh, I don't recall what it cost, but it wasn't much. It was like five dollars or something. Three dollars, four dollars, I think. Anyway, it's way 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 cool, and. I want you to talk a little bit about the Valley of the Kings and what lies beneath. Oh, that's something I read about in Uncertain Places. There are extraordinary chambers underneath the Valley of the Kings that are preserved almost to the extent that they were when our ancient ancestors in Egypt were setting eyes on them. They are fully colorized uh, chambers uh, passageways, uh, places of worship, crypts, um, ceremonial centers, and the statuary and the base reliefs that appear beneath the Valley of Kings, Whitley, they are as, as brilliantly colorized as anything that you would look upon with your own eyes today in the 21st century. It's not always easy to enter these places. You have to pay extra and, you know, I mean, there's, um, how shall I put this? You know, you, you, as as Gurdjieff said, if you have to grease the wheels if you want the cart to go. So you have to <laughs> grease the wheels. And I wish it were something that everybody could lay lay eyes on. We were fortunate enough to be able to lay eyes on these things. And there was a, a guide um, in one of these chambers who invited me to lay my hands on the enormous life-size uh, base relief of a bull. And I hesitated because I take seriously the preservation of antiquities. And if people are trapezing through these places and touching things uh, over generations, they're going to get damaged and they're going to get destroyed. And I care about that very much. But I was being offered a gift and I decided to accept this gift. And I uh, laid hands on this base relief of a bull. And all I can say, and I'm not one who experiences a lot of phenomena, I just felt electricity shoot through my body, light shoot through my body. It was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. 
And such things give you a glimpse, perhaps, of what some of the ancients experienced. You know, Linda Moulton Howe had a similar experience on the island of Patmos in the cavern of St. John uh, and of touching the wall and, and having that electrical energy come through. That energy is the earth, the life. It is life itself. And I felt it a lot, too, in different situations. Mm-hmm. And not there. I would love to be there and to do that. But again, you're right. Placing your hands on that was a great privilege. And I'm not sure that it should be extended to many people. Uh, and so I probably wouldn't ask if I was in those in, in there simply because I felt the energy elsewhere already. Yes. You see what I mean? In other words, I, yes. I would take that. Yes. But, um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the interesting thing is that, that when Taurus was, Taurus the bull, that was, um, that was before, that was before um, we have Pisces and then prior to Pisces, we had uh, the ram. Yes. And then prior to that, the bull. Yes. Yes. So it was a, that that represents something from a very very long time ago. Yes. In fact, if you abide by the precession of the equinoxes, you could say arguably that spring begins with the bull going back 26,000 years ago or something close to it. Uh yeah. in the way that, you know, the the equinoxes will will precess through uh different signs based on the wobble of the earth's axis. Uh so if the spring equinox occurred in Taurus, it, it, it probably would have been close to 26,000 years ago. And the bull, of course, is the, is the representative of strength in the yes. sense, the haunches of the bull are the strength, uh, which is repeated again in, the, in, in various ways in many other areas in the tarot, for one. Uh, I think on my little book, The Path, which you considered publishing, but I, I didn't, we didn't get a chance to get to it. Right. Uh, uh, we talk about the, the the various beasts of the Sphinx, and and that, if I may, I wanted to. Oh, I'm sorry. I no, no, go, please, please. You know, one thing I wanted to mention, since we're talking about deepest antiquity, um, one of the things that I touch on in the book is I'm very sympathetic uh, to what's sometimes called the Shock West thesis, uh, referencing the Egyptologists, uh, Robert M. Schock and the now deceased John Anthony West. Um, many years ago, this goes back to the 1980s, uh, through on-site investigation, they detected uh, water damage on the oldest portion of the Sphinx that would have predated the antiquity of Egyptian civilization um, by several thousand years. Uh, you know, strictly speaking, if we go by the conservative timeline, what we refer to as ancient Egypt would be would go back to let's say three thousand five hundred BC. But the Shock West thesis, uh, to which I'm sympathetic, holds that water damage on the oldest portion of the Sphinx would predate Egyptian civilization to seven thousand five hundred or ten thousand BC. And there are possibilities that it's a good deal older than that. I'm very sympathetic to that thesis for a variety of reasons and. Having visited Egypt recently, one of the things that I realize is that for the Egyptian public, uh, this kind of thing is very, very sensitive, as is the ancient aliens thesis, because members of the Egyptian public feel as though um, either the ancient alien thesis or the shock west thesis, the predating of the monuments, will somehow, uh, how can I put it? will compromise a sense of Egyptian uh, national identity. And that's a very sensitive political and cultural issue in Egypt today. But from my perspective, predating these monuments only deepens our awe for Egyptian civilization. It in no way displaces um, the Egyptian public's a very just and very proud um sense of custodianship. It only deepens it. It only deepens it. And it's it's really tough to research some of these issues because of these uh, political and cultural sensitivities. You know, some people have asked me over the years, why are archaeologists 
uh, not probing, for example, the Shockwest thesis. And there are a variety of issues there. One of the issues is absolute denialism, a kind of anti-intellectual smash Galileo's telescope uh, denialism, where uh, questioning uh, the timeline of standard antiquity would be academically endangering to people who have abided their careers by that timeline. So you have politics uh, in the West, and then to some extent, you have politics in Egypt, where depending upon who is in charge of antiquities, these inquiries are seen as displacing Egyptian antiquity. And and as far as that argument goes, I'm sympathetic to it. And, and it doesn't, there doesn't need to be a, a, a fight there. There doesn't need to be a struggle there. Uh, the question of Egypt's antiquity only deepens the custodianship uh, of the Egyptian people. Okay, we're going to take another brief break for our free Dreamlanders. Uh, so free Dreamlanders, enjoy these commercials, and we'll be right back. There's a new world coming if we can take it. What does that mean? The first part of the message is if we can take it, for ourselves on our own terms. The second part of the message is, can we bear the newness and the huge expansion of human consciousness that is going to be involved? Can we take it? A new world. It doesn't mince words. It tells the good, the bad, and the ugly like it is. And it leaves a message behind. Can you do this? Do you want to? Do we have an alternative? Right now, at this point in history, mankind is either going to get a lot bigger or not. I choose to go forward. I choose to live for and in the future. I choose the future a new world. We can take it. Available in hardcover, softcover, audiobook, and Kindle. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? Unknown Country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com There's no place like it in the world. We're talking to Mitch Horowitz, his website, MitchHorowitz.com, his new book, Uncertain Places, some of which he has been to, many of which he has been to. Mitch, uh, I want to go now to the some other material. We've been talking about the distant past. Maybe we should keep on with that a little bit because you have some fascinating material in it about the old gods the old gods, and are they lonely? Are they longing for us? And if so, then what are they? Tell us about the old gods and your vision of them. Well, I'm very interested in primeval worship. And every human civilization across the globe, from Polynesia to Siberia, has recorded relationships with greater intelligences. Uh, sometimes, frequently, these were petitionary relationships. And you find a remarkable and yet converging uh, panoply of deities, gods, in ancient civilizations from the world over. And we in the West think in terms of the Abrahamic traditions Judaism, Christianity, Islam, 
and monotheism is so baked into our culture that it seems almost an absolute. And yet, in fact, a monotheism, as we know it, has existed for only a tiny sliver of human civilization. And we look at the ancients and we've inherited so many of their ideas, mathematics, engineering, agriculture, drama, moral parables, psychological insights as told in myth and so forth. And yet a facet of their lives that was absolutely essential to everyday existence was forming relationships uh, with deities. And we have fragments, threads that have come down to us from those practices. And I, as a seeker, have been very eager, uh, especially over these past several years, to take up these threads and experiment with these things. It's a wonderful experiment. And with respect to the old gods being lonely, if one can accept the idea of there being an intelligence that we would consider extra physical at this point in our human development, this language may require revising sometime in the future. Maybe it'll require revising sometime in our own generation. But if we consider the prospect of extra physical intelligences based on our current development, well, it stands to reason that you can't have intellect without emotion. You can't have ethics without emotion. What else are ethics but a codification of empathy? No empathy, no ethics. And if these intelligences have emotions, then it stands to reason that like the rest of us, they can feel loneliness. And this has been the state of affairs of humanity for the last slight sliver of our history. And I think it's a propitious possibility for the individual to explore whether forming or seeking a petitionary relationship with a deity, maybe one from the ancient pantheon, uh, could be very powerful in a person's life. It has been in mine. Well, tell us more. Well, one of the experiments that I've done, Whitley, that's probably the most controversial part of my career, and this is something I write about extensively in uncertain places, has been experimenting with the force that we in the Abrahamic traditions uh, called, call Satan, which of course we see as the embodiment of everything that is evil, that is maleficent, that is violent. I have a completely different esoteric reading of that, and it's not unprecedented. The romantic poets and dramatists did not see the figure of Satan that way. And by um, talking specifically about um, William Blake, Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley, they saw the force of the satanic as a not quite metaphorical force of usurpation, individuality, emancipation, self-expression, rebelliousness. I have been hugely influenced by the vision of the Romantics, as well as things that I encountered as a little kid uh, growing up in a traditional Jewish household. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah. And the, 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 the energy of which I'm speaking, as it appears uh, in the Old Testament, is not necessarily a maleficent energy. It is an energy with which the ancient Hebrews, for example, when they were wandering in the desert, saw and understood as a part of life. There was a figure in the desert who went by the name, the scriptural name of Azazel, a name that is read out in synagogues in Yom Kippur. And Azazel was a figure who coexisted in the desert with the Hebrews, with whom they had a morally neutral relationship. And I have gotten very interested in kind of peeling back the layers of the onion and asking whether we in the West have an excessively polarized and calcified idea of this energy called the satanic that you might find in scripture starting in Genesis 3 with the so-called snake in the garden and then proceeds up through different books. And it was only, of course, centuries later, centuries later, post-biblical, that all this got codified into a kind of either-or, black-and-white, binary, uh, evil force. I don't see it that way. I think that's been a misunderstanding in the West's reading of its own history. 
And that's something I've been very intimately experimenting with. You know, I have had in my life, all of my adult life, and I suspect in my childhood too, a lot of experience with the, with entities that I would consider to be very dark. Mm-hmm. And in particular, recently, it's been ferocious. But instead of calling them demons, which they certainly, I mean, they certainly fit that description. I'm not talking about the visitors, folks. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about physical entities that are the ones that cause the explosions outside of my apartment. My listeners know more about this than you do, I'm sure. But uh, suffice to say that I've been through a lot lately. And what has happened, there's been an intrusion into the apartment. There's been an attack on the website. And all of it has a very sinister quality, more than a normal. In other words, it wasn't a normal hacker. And it wasn't a normal entry into the apartment. Uh but what I have learned is that if I take this one way, I can say that I'm under attack by evil. If I take it another way, I can use it as a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, is that kind of what you're talking about? Well, yes and no. I, I Look, on the scale of the human psyche, I would describe evil as as spite. I think we have a polarity in the human psyche between uh, empathy and spite. So speaking in terms of the psyche, I don't want to consort with forces of of spite, uh, 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 which is to say beings that, that cause pain as an, as an end to itself. And we see this in the human race. I mean, you know, just go on Twitter as soon as the show is over and, you know, you'll see all kinds of people who regard themselves as good, upstanding people who act out of out of spite, who 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 derive a, a thrill from insulting or hurting other people. And they do so all day long. The troll um, patrol, right? The troll patrol. And, you know, they are persuaded, of course, as everyone is who throws a rock, that they're throwing a rock for some good reason. Very, very rarely true. So I don't want to consort. I'm not interested in consorting uh, with forces of of spite or maleficence. I'm interested in consorting with forces that tear open our idea of limitations, which is to me is what the snake in the garden was. Uh, You have our parabolic figures of Adam and Eve in the garden who are kind of like kept pets in an aquarium. And Standing in this garden are two trees or possibly one tree, uh, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they can eat from every tree in the garden except for the one that will actually give them measurement, except for the one that will actually give them awareness, except for the one that will actually give them the power of creativity. And with creativity comes friction. And that is part of the human tragedy. That is part of the paradox that we have to live within. We can forge jewelry or we can forge weapons and they're both done by the same chemical processes, more or less, heating metals. And so it seems to me that the parabolic snake in the garden represents that energy of radical selfhood, radical self-expression, possibility, rebellion, usurpation, discontent. That's, That's what I'm attempting to consort with. It's very, very interesting because that's a, that's a, it seems to me a powerful and dangerous direction to go in. Have you had direct experience? Oh, free dreamlanders. Here's some direct experience for you. We're taking a pause just for you. We'll be right back. It was the quietest, loveliest evening you could imagine.
And then suddenly, uh, a group of them are coming toward him. And he gets taken outside to the back porch, where he's placed on this cot. That then takes him out to a clearing in the woods. I remember sitting in a circle in the woods, in the snow. And then I suddenly went up in the air. I felt like when you're going up in a fast elevator, I felt my stomach went le left behind and I see the trees going by and then I see the clouds. Then I'm in a little room just like that. It's frightening being completely conscious, not having control of your body and then being shot up into some kind of ship or room. It's not trees in here. And I kept trying to wake up because I obviously was not in bed. You know, it had to be a nightmare, right? And uh, I realized these creatures were there. They were funny looking. They were like the workers. And then there was this willowy kind of taller being with the great big black eyes who was the leader it felt like a woman to me I see the head real clearly are you old she says yes I'm old look at her real close she put your cheek up by my face What do you mean an operation? I'm not going to let you do an operation on me. You have absolutely no right. She says we do have a right. I kept trying to wake up because I thought I was having a nightmare. I'm getting real scared again. Real scared. Because I cannot do a thing about this. Could let me smell you. I wanted to smell him because I wanted to, I was trying to get some way of telling whether or not this was real. So this one puts his hand up against my face and it smelled like cinnamon. The smell of cinnamon was grounding in one sense. It made me think that I was in a real situation. In another sense, it was extremely disturbing for the same reason. The real situation I was in was very weird and very provocative with two different kinds of extremely strange looking creatures and I was physically helpless and couldn't get away. That's when they start to perform experiments on his body. Blue ones open a box and show me this needle and they're going to put the needle in my head. I, how I know that, I don't know, but I do. And I start to say, you're going to ruin a beautiful mind. But they put the needle in the side of my head anyway. It makes a cracking sound, but there's no pain. I thought they were going to cut my whole head open. We're talking to Mitch Horowitz, his website, MitchHorowitz.com, his new book, Uncertain Places, Essays on Occult and Outsider Experiences. Uh, well, so if you could respond to what I, go ahead, just go ahead. Sure. Um, the experiments that I'm describing, I've been on, I would say, since probably about uh, New Year's of 2018. So, you know, give or take, you know, five years, six years. Um, I would say in that time, uh, my life in various and, and, and multiple ways has been a great deal better 
I have felt a great deal more at home in myself, relaxed in myself, purposeful in my work, and above all else, uh, self-expressive. And so if that can be described as a palpable experience, that is, uh, that's the fruit from, from the tree that I've, I've eaten from. And of course, one has all kinds of inner experiences, um, experiences that seem expansive of the intuition, of the psyche. I've had those experiences, and I feel it's, for me, been a very positive journey. Now, when you say experience, what did you do, actually? What are you doing? Uh, uh, prayer, ritual, uh, deep, deep study and reading, trying to understand um, how this energy that I'm describing, which we call the satanic, has been expressed in different ways throughout the Western story uh, from from deepest antiquity up through the Renaissance, the Romantic era uh, in our own time, and trying to get a grasp of a different reading uh, and a different relationship than has been provided us uh, in our story up to this point. You know, it's interesting The in the pyramid text and the pyramid of Unus, the serpent is in us. The serpent yes. is in the spine. But when we when it comes to um, uh, we come to I guess at some point there was a break between the the people who became the wanderers the Hebrews and the and the other Egyptians over over whether or not God was a multiple entities and deities or a single being. And like there was a reversal, which is if in the history of religion is very common when the the uh, the gods and the saints of one religion become the demons and uh, of the next. And it's the, the human serpent, story, yeah. Yeah. the serpent left our bodies, yes, and is now outside. And you talk a lot about the serpent in your book. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision of what the serpent is? And, and should it return to us and become part of us again? I think the serpent, I would say the serpent is self-expression. The place that I've come to is, you know, we all ask ourselves, what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Uh, there are different answers to that question based upon different people's backgrounds. Some people have no answer or whatever, which I really honor. Uh, for me, self-expression is the serpent. Uh, that's, that's, that's the purpose of life for me. It doesn't exclude a person from other roles. There are all kinds of roles that we have to play and that we should play. There are debts that we owe people uh, uh, broadly defined, and those debts must be paid. There's reciprocity. But uh, self-expression for me is the, is the purpose of existence, and I think that's the force that the serpent represents. That's the force that came to life when uh, our parabolic ancestors ate from the, the so-called tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they were excluded from the garden. Childhood ended. Uh, you had to sweat. You had to labor. You had to go through pain. There was fratricide. And it may be that friction is the inevitable price of creativity. How, what an interesting statement. And I think back to your experience with the bull and the descriptions of the energy of the serpent in the spine in the pyramid text of the smaller serpents, the seven smaller serpents circling it and drawing the experience of life into the spine. Yes. Uh, they, of course, they became the, the uh, chakras later, but the, it, this yes. was long before that appeared. Uh, they were called the tanitter, the, the little things, little serpents now so there's a there's almost a soul science implied mm -hmm. by all of that in other words someone knew something that we don't know anymore about the nature of reality in the world who created that bull and put it where it is under the valley of the kings and i think probably that is also the secret of why the Valley of the Kings is where it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you can you speculate about what that may be, what that energy we've lost 
touch with may be. It's been said that there's greater truth in myth than in history, because myths contain primeval insights that humanity had of itself. And I can only imagine that the ancients had a much, much deeper understanding of and relationship with nature than we have today. Uh, and it's a trade-off. It's not as if one thing is intrinsically better than another thing. We have lots of things today uh, that they didn't have, including longer physical lifespans, including uh, the digital culture that's allowing you and I to speak from across the country right now and so forth and so on. But they had a deeper and fuller relationship to nature on which they depended for their daily survival. And I can only fathom that encrypted within our creation stories, both that which you were just referencing, uh, those found within the Vedic tradition, those found within deepest Abrahamic uh, antiquity, those found within the Hermetic tradition, uh, people were relating experiences, just as you've related in your books. And these experiences were so universal that they have got a hold on our psyches that rationalism cannot shake. And if that is not a scent trail of universal truth, then I don't know what is. That's a very interesting idea. A scent trail of universal, because they have such a hold on our psyches. You know, that's really powerful. Mitch, I've never thought of it that way before. It's really a good idea. Uh, how would we reconnect with these, with the gods, with these energies, should we, should we reverence Apollo and Isis? How do we go about that? I, 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 I would answer in the affirmative to that. Uh, it depends upon the individual's own orientation. We are fortunate enough in this generation to have fragments of antiquity that have come down to us. We don't have much, but we have enough. We have enough threads to put together into a garment. And I personally would say that the individual seeker, uh, if moved, owes it to him or herself to look at the ancient pantheon and ask, where do I feel a sense of emotional resonance? These are emotional stories. You know, we don't, we don't look at parabolic myth so that we can figure out how to how to, how to peel an onion. We know how to peel an onion and we have implements that can peel onions just fine. We look at parabolic myth as a mirror, as a mirror into our deepest psyche. So if you feel resonance with a deific figure from whatever tradition of whatever kind, I would say that's meaningful. You're speaking in a language at that point of emotion, of selfhood, of, of when I say psyche, I mean a compact between the intellect and emotion. That to me is what the psyche is. And if you feel a certain pull in that direction, if something exacts a pull on your magnetic center, to use a, a, a phrase uh, from Gurdjieff's philosophy, pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. That could be an extraordinary gift at that moment, not unlike the gift I was being given when somebody offered me the chance to lay hands on a base relief of a bull and see where it goes, see where it goes. Uh, we all know what, what meditation is. We all know what prayer is. We all have a language within our individual psyche. Exercise it, experiment, see, read, gather in material, use these precious fragments that have come down to us from the ancients and pursue your relationship and see what transpires. You know, at the, in the first century BC, uh, AD, excuse me, uh, about 100 AD, the, the sun's uh, heat output changed. It became warmer. Mm -hmm. uh, the sun began to emit more energy, which it, it, it cycles. And, uh, this, uh, and it, later it would do the opposite. And mm -hmm. we would have the, um, the uh, little ice age of the Middle Ages. But when that happened, it caused drought across the world. And in fact, it's the same thing that's happening now, but for different reasons now. Uh, it caused, um, and the Mediterranean infrastructure, which is now a very big population, 
suddenly people didn't have enough to eat. Their immune systems became stressed. There was a lot of circulation among people, and a series of pandemics started. So they had a combination of famine and pandemics. And by the time another 300 years had passed, they were literally hammering the statues of the gods to pieces and pulling the temples down because they felt like the gods had literally turned against them. So what is this relation? That's why we ended up where we are with basically a, a, a two deities, uh, uh, God the Father and God the Son. Uh, 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 and I don't want to go into the complexities of that now because that's not what we're talking about. But how do the gods actually relate to nature? And I, I get back to the moment with the bull, which I think is so important. Because they do. You you put your hands right on it mm -hmm. yourself, mm -hmm. and you felt that energy. Mm -hmm. So see if you can explore this. I don't expect a simple answer to the question. How do the gods relate to nature? It seems to me that we exist under great complexity of laws and forces. Uh, that's one of the reasons why, although I'm very interested in the mind power thesis, which you and I have talked about before, I don't subscribe. I don't like to use language like law of attraction and things like that because it implies the existence of one overall mental super law. And while intelligence, the psyche, consciousness may be the ultimate arbiter of reality, we live in a certain sphere of existence. The Hermeticists saw creation as emanating out into multiple spheres. We occupy a sphere of existence where we suffer many different laws and forces, including physical decline, including mortality, including natural disasters and things, things of that form. That is just our situation, it seems to me. Uh, that situation may change as the individual undergoes different processes, perhaps eternal recurrence or what is popularly called reincarnation. Perhaps we move more towards the center of the source of, of creation, which the Hermeticists saw as noose or great intellect. And perhaps as we move more towards that center, we are bound by fewer laws and forces that has a modern correlate in the philosophy of Gurji, for example, which, which actually comports well with the hermetic worldview. But the world that we live in is one in which are there, are there accidents? Is there happenstance? Are there catastrophes? Yes. Yes. I believe to all that because we just simply live in a sphere where physical phenomena, some of which you just described, is part of what we suffer, is part of what we experience, is part of what we, what we, what, what defines this stage of life that we find ourselves in. And I don't necessarily think that those things come from either uh, thought or deific decree so much as that's the name of the game in terms of the reality that we occupy. And yet, we also get glimpses of other realities. These glimpses may be found in particle phenomena. These glimpses may be found in uh, clinical evidence of ESP or precognition. These glimpses may be found in uh, uh, abduction testimony or the encountering of visitors. These glimpses occur in all kinds of ways and are as concretely real and as measurable as my blood pressure. But they are not constant. They are exceptions. So we refer to them as anomalies. So there is some other form of life, which you might call a cult, which you might call interdimensional, which maybe is extraterrestrial. There are other forms of life. But the name of the game that we have to live under conscripts us to a lot of different laws and forces. And I don't think those things are by some kind of decree. I think they're they're just... They're, the reality of the concentric circle we find ourselves in. You know, you're so interesting that I am in danger of losing my train of thought, my questions, because I, my mind goes so many different places while you're talking. It's wonderful, Mitch. 
free dreamlanders what's not so wonderful is your part of this is ended we're ending for you but subscribers no no we're keeping on and we're going way deeper uh because there's lots of depth to go into here we're going to be talking about quantum physics we're going to be talking about wicca we're, we're going to be talking about Oh my gosh, I don't know what will come out of Mitch next. His book, Uncertain Places. Get involved with him. Go to MitchHorowitz.com. It's a very beautiful and extraordinary website, like everything else about this remarkable man, Free Dreamlanders. Thank you so much for being with us, as always, on Dreamland. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.